Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to get started. Is that loud? <laughs> I'm Judy Langhans from the Center of Learning and Professional Development, Continuing Nursing Education Office. I'd like to thank you for joining us for our October session of Nursing Grand Rounds in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, entitled Documenting Intimate Partner Violence, What You, um, what you Write Can Change Someone's Life. I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing us online today. The learning outcome for today's presentation is, at the end of this learning activity, the participant will be able to document intimate partner violence in a clear, objective, and concise way in order to enhance safety for victims and facilitate utilization of the health, health record in legal proceedings. Just a few housekeeping details before we get started. Please be sure to sign in. Um, these sign-in sheets in the front of the room. You must attend 80% of the program to receive credit, and this educational activity carries one contact hour. For those viewing online, please feel free to email me during the presentation with any questions you may have, and I'll relay them to the presenters. And also, please email me within one hour after the presentation with your name, degree and postal zip code, um, letting me know that you viewed this presentation live so I can record your attendance. My email address is judith.m, as in may, dot langhands at hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online survey um, before the end of the day. The, uh, the CNE office values your feedback and hopes you take a moment to complete the evaluation. Um, your contact hour will be awarded to your online transcript within two weeks. There are instructions in the front of the room on how to access your online transcript or you can contact me. Um, neither, our, neither of our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this presentation and no one refused to disclose. Our presenters today are Abby Tassel and Janet Carroll. Both Abby and Janet have presented at Nursing Grand Rounds before on this important topic, and we're delighted to have them with us today, and they're going to introduce themselves. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming, first of all. Um, very important topic. Uh, so my name is Janet Carroll. I'm a registered nurse here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Uh, I, I work in the emergency department. I also I'm in the clinical coordinator for the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program, um, as well as I, um, and I'm also the statewide coordinator for the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, and I'm glad that you can join us today. And I'm Abby Tassel. I'm the assistant director at WISE. WISE. WISE is the local domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking organization in the Upper Valley area. There's an organization likewise in every community in the United States. So if you're working someplace else, go find them. Um, and I've been doing this work for about two and a half decades, and I work at WISE, and I also work in an organization in Minneapolis, Minnesota called Praxis International, um, whose goal is really to build capacity in communities to respond to domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking, and sex trafficking in ways that ultimately will end the violence, so how we work um, in a multi-level system. And today we're going to be talking about documenting, which I am so happy to be doing, and I'm particularly happy to be doing with Janet, who's an expert in it, and I am not, because I'm not a provider. Um, but also because at WISE, we work with um, usually around 1,100 people a year. About 90% of them are women who are victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. The majority of them um, every year are victims of domestic violence. And what we hear again and again and again is, um, you know, someone was um, being battered and um, finally either there was some sort of interaction with the criminal legal system, so the police came to the house, or the person is getting a divorce or going through some sort of civil legal process and um, says to themselves and to us often, oh, I told my healthcare provider about what was happening at home, so I'm gonna go get my medical record. And they get their medical record, and lo and behold, to everyone's horror, there's nothing in the medical record about the abuse that they disclosed to their healthcare provider. 
Um, so this is devastating for the victim themselves. They feel completely unsupported by their providers. Um, and as far as the system is concerned, it is often um, the make or break part of uh, legal proceedings. So in the criminal system, sometimes they just choose not to take the case forward at all. Um, in civil processes, it can mean something like someone who's an abuser can have custody of children. So it's an enormous, enormous issue. And there are lots of really good reasons. I know that providers haven't been doing it. So what we're hoping today is to really build that capacity and get um, rid of some of those barriers to people not documenting what they hear and see in their healthcare practices. So super important. And um, Judy already shared our learning objectives. So first of all, just going to talk a little bit about what we're talking about, which um, in my work we call domestic violence. In healthcare, usually it's called intimate partner violence. And um, people in my line of work used to sort of, you know, think, oh, intimate partner violence. That's like, you know, some big fancy term, and they're sort of silly. But more and more, I've become a real fan of this term because um, the dynamics in intimate partner violence are different from the dynamics in any other kind of violence. And so really being specific, so you know, domestic violence now has come to um, mean you know, violence sort of in the home and can be other kinds of relationships. But those other kinds of relationships um, are different from what you see in intimate partners. So this is the American Medical Association's definition, and um, just thought we could use it as sort of a starting point. Um, so it's a pattern of coercive behaviors. So this is important, it's a pattern. Often what healthcare providers see is this snapshot, and maybe it's actually an emergent injury, but that is only a little teeny piece of what's happening. And we always wanna take the step back and be looking at this as a pattern. Part of the reason that we want to do this is that um, people who are abusers will also get hurt sometimes in intimate partner violence, right? If they're going to hurt someone and that person defends themselves, it's not uncommon to see someone who's actually an abuser with a scratch on their face or you know, if they're going to strangle someone, then what happens to their hands when that person pries their hands off of them? There are all sorts of ways um, that you see victims defending themselves and this being misunderstood when the police get called and when they seek health care. So really important to be taking that step back and not just taking it at face value for what just happened. Um, so there's the you know, physical violence, the battering and injury, and the psychological abuse. So this is enormous. Um, People who are victimized will tell you every time that the worst thing is the psychological piece. So they can have broken bones and the broken bones heal, but the impact by being abused by the one person that you choose to love, trust, maybe be the parent of your children um, is absolutely enormous. And abusers use this to their benefit all the time. So when we're in a relationship, you know, we share what we care about. We share our insecurities with that person. In a violent relationship, that's exactly the nugget that the abuser will use against the victim. So if I'm feeling really insecure about something, you know, oh, I'm really feeling out of shape these days. I should be working out more. So our, in a you know, healthy relationship, my partner will say, hey, you know, maybe we should try to walk together or something if that would be helpful. In an abusive relationship, they'll say, you're you know, a fat slob and no one else is ever going to want you because you don't exercise. Um, they'll use exactly that thing that you share with them against, them, against you, because they know that it's something that you actually believe. Sexual assault is incredibly prevalent in intimate partner violence, and it's something to be asking about, because um, we find at WISE we can be working with someone for years before they disclose that violence. Um, because there's so much shame around it. And um, so always something to be thinking about and looking for because it's the last thing that anyone wants to talk about. And social isolation. So um, if you're isolated, then it's going to be really hard to reach out for help. And you know, in our areas, you'll see this sometimes as someone living way out in a rural area. Um, and you know, they don't have access maybe to a cell phone that works, and maybe their partner takes the car to work every day. 
Um, so you can be really physically isolated, but it can also happen living in town, living you know, on a college campus. People, it's amazing how isolated people can become when um, they're in a violent relationship, when they're being battered. And in general, just being deprived and intimidated. Um, this is an enormous issue, both in the United States and across the world. So at WISE, we work with you know, over 1,100 people a year, and I'm sure we're not even coming close to scratching the surface. And one of the reasons we know that is what happens usually is we'll talk to one person, and then all of a sudden, a little cluster of people will start to come to us, because it's her friends or her family. Or, and, um, and we're sure that those clusters are in all sorts of other places, but haven't accessed WISE. So an enormous <coughs> issue. Um, you know, there are all sorts of studies that repeatedly show that between a third and a half of women are um, the victims of intimate partner violence in the United States. And um, while I'm not going to say that men aren't the victims of domestic violence, they're often really different dynamics and, um, and usually aren't as um, hurt physically in that process. So I'll be using primarily she, him as the victim. Um, and perpetrator, but I never mean to say that that's the only way it can happen. And also, we need to be really aware, one, that gender isn't only binary, that it's more fluid than that, and also that in same-sex relationships, um, intimate partner violence happens at pretty much the same rates. Um, so what do you think happens on the first date with a batterer? What was that? I said charming. Yes. So perfect. Right. So um, men who are abusive tend to be especially charming up front because this is another way to have control, to be, you know, have this power and control over someone else. So tend to be super charming. And then the abusive behaviors start to sort of sneak in. And it's one of the things that's so difficult and confusing for the victim. It's like, well, wait a second. This is this like wonderful person that I met. Why is he acting this way? And then often we'll start to try to kind of make sense of it, and it's never going to make sense of it. Um, so this undermining self-esteem starts, you know, because that's a way of also having control. And then once someone is really um, trapped is when the violence sometimes um, will escalate. And um, so when I started to do this work, I started to volunteer at a local battered women's shelter in the Boston area. And, um, I used to work in architecture and construction, and um, I went to a meeting one day, and so I was like having a conversation with the office manager at this contractor's office, um, and I always really liked to talk to her. She was just a really fun person to chat with, um, and this like beautiful, tall woman, and she, you know, she's like, hey, what's up? And I said, no, I started to do this volunteer work, and she said, did I ever tell you about my first husband? And I said, no, you know, I didn't know you were married before. She was still in her 20s. And she proceeded to tell me about um, marrying her high school sweetheart. And um, as soon as they were married, he started to exhibit some of these behaviors. So, you know, here, this example of, you know, once they're trapped. So you'll see this once someone moves in or once someone is married that the violence will start to escalate. So they were married, and um, the violence was escalating. She couldn't make sense of it. And here's this guy that she thought was so wonderful. Um, and it culminated in a night where she came home from work, and her husband was sitting on the couch and said, you know, hey, you know, where's dinner? And she said, oh, you know, I'm just getting home from work. Not really ready yet. And um, he got really mad and beat her until she was unconscious and put her in a closet. And when she regained consciousness, she crawled out of the closet and he was still sitting there on the couch, just like having a beer, watching TV. And this was the point at which she said to herself, like, I have got to get out of here or I'm going to be killed. And um, unfortunately, this does happen. And in the Upper Valley, the larger Upper Valley area, we've had four intimate partner violence homicides in the past couple of years. So it's you know, enormous numbers, especially for an area like this where homicide is so rare in other, any other cases. Um, but you know, an example of the kind of escalation that can happen. The other thing that I think about with her that was just such a great lesson for me was 
you know, she was this tall, beautiful, strong, intelligent, you know, woman who was out in the working world. Um, and she was the last person I ever would have thought of as a victim of domestic violence. So every stereotype that I ever had about who could be a victim, really, and you know, and I'm sure if I ever met her husband, I'd probably think, and also who could be a perpetrator, because um, it didn't fit any of the stereotypes. So this is just the power and control wheel, and the idea is just be thinking about this as power and control. Um, you can find this pretty much anywhere, a really helpful tool. So when we're talking to someone, we're not asking them ever, oh, are you the victim of domestic violence? Because people will say no. Um, and we get calls all the time from people who say, oh, my friend told me to call, or my mom, or whatever. And you know, I'm not the victim of domestic violence. And so what we say is, you know, so when we're thinking about domestic violence, we think about this pattern of power and control. And that is a huge light bulb for a lot of people who say, oh my gosh, yeah, he's really controlling. You know, so it's a kind of a helpful thing, I think, sometimes in healthcare as well. There are a lot of misunderstandings about intimate partner violence. Um, one is that it's somehow a mental illness, which it is not. Um, Batterers are not, um, you know, don't meet the criteria for any particular mental illness. They will often um, very closely align with the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. So it's this very, you know, kind of feeling entitled um, way of being. But it, um, and then, which is not to say that men who batter can't also be mentally ill. So they can have other mental disorders, but that's not what's causing the violence. So making sure that those two things are very separate is important. Um, there's also sometimes overlap with addictions, um, but it's not what's causing the violence. So again, at WISE, we get this call, oh, my husband's great except when he drinks. You know, so I want to get him into some sort of treatment program. And we will again start to reframe and say, well, you know, when we're thinking about this, a lot of time we're thinking about power and control. And um, they can start to see like, oh, well, yeah, when he's using, maybe he's more violent or more controlling or less inhibited. So is using violence, using physical violence. But that's not what's actually causing the violence. Um, and so these are two separate things and that he might need help with. Um, it's not about being out of control. So where, where are victims injured, do you think? Where in your body, on the body, do you think you see bruising usually? Where's that? What's that? Underneath their clothes. Underneath their clothes. Right. So, um, yeah, so generally the injuries that you'll see, unless someone is really isolated from any of the public, is where clothes are going to cover it. Um, and so this is not an out of control behavior. This is very controlled, like limiting where the bruising is going to be to where the victim is going to be able to cover it up. Um, it's not about the victim's behavior. So like in my story, she comes home from work and he's blaming her for not having dinner on the table, even though she's just walking in the door from work. And so in his mind, it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm so angry at her, I want to kill her because she doesn't have dinner on the table. But that's not what it is. So, um, and you'll see this pattern of victims trying, you know, oh, if I just get dinner on the table in time, oh, if I just, you know, get the kids in bed in time, oh, if I just do this. But it's not, it, this is this pattern of power control. Whatever, you know, that, if that thing is taken care of, there will be another thing, because it's really about control. Um, and it's not an unemployment issue, even though we hear this a lot, you know, when there's a downturn in um, kind of the economy. Oh, it must be, you know, really busy at WISE because of the unemployment. And in fact, if someone's unemployed and an abuser and they're hanging out at home all the time, they probably will be abusing their partner more because they're at home all the time. But it's not causing the violence yet. Um, so perpetrators are controlling, um, feel entitled. Um, and, but the thing I think that can be so important in healthcare in particular is that they really strive to have a good public image. Um, so they are not the people that you're going to usually suspect are abusers. So I actually gave a um, talk at another hospital recently. And at the end of the talk, I don't want anyone to feel like they can't talk to me afterwards, but I'm going to tell the story. <laughs> so this man comes like running down and, um, 
and you know, telling you how happy he is that he's doing this work, you know, that we're doing this work, and how important it is, and blah, 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 and on and on and on. And um, I'm thinking, like, what? Wait a second. I think I know who this guy is. And it turns out that, in fact, Weiss has worked with his wife, and he's been arrested for domestic violence. So. Um, you know, when he was the first one to come running down to show kind of all of his colleagues how concerned he was about domestic violence. Um, so you've got to be really careful of this. Children are enormously impacted, and um, for boys, there's a, some really interesting research that shows that boys who grow up in homes where they're witnessing violence are more likely to become perpetrators than boys who are directly abused. Um, and so, Apart from that, I think, I think in particular with boys, one thing that is very important is that there is this enormous overlap and that men who grow up in homes where there's domestic violence, um, it's not like they, you know, their future is written for them at all. We have so many men who work with us at WISE, and I hear this from law enforcement officers all the time in particular. Like, I went into this line of work because I saw what my father did to my mom and I'm not going to be that guy. So it also can be this real motivating factor for changing the world, really. So this was just drawn by a kid who was at WISE. And domestic violence really continues um, because it works. It, it maintains this power and control for the perpetrator. And um, victims get blamed, and it gets the violence gets minimized. So one of the things that's so exciting for me about um, building up our capacity for documentation is it's one of the interventions we can really have that can change this. We can actually hold offenders accountable more if healthcare does a better job of documenting the violence. Um, so healthcare happens to be one of the places that victims can access when they're isolated, especially if they're children. You know, they're not going to, you know, not take their children to see a practitioner. So really, really important. Um, so why doesn't she leave? You hear this a lot, and we prefer that we be thinking about, you know, why is he doing that? Um, which is less victim blaming, and yet there are lots of reasons that victims don't or can't leave. So what? Why don't victims leave? Sure. Financial. Financial, right? Other things? Safety issues. Sa what about safety? They're worried that he'll retaliate or? Right. Yeah, so this idea that leaving is the answer to the violence actually is sort of just the opposite of the reality. So, you know, I mentioned four women had been killed in our area. All four women had left the relationship. So um, this is the most lethal time, actually, in the relationship and the most dangerous time. Having law enforcement involved, having a restraining order, all those things can be really helpful. But we always want to make sure that the victim is making choices around that because she's the one that's going to know, is this a good idea, is it not a good idea, how do we safety plan around this, um, how do we do this in a way that's going to make sense. There are lots of really powerful reasons that people stay. And our job, certainly at WISE, is to work with that expertise that that woman has and figure out with her what's going to be the best thing for her and her kids, not to tell her what to do. She's the expert. And in our rural communities, um, we have even more barriers. There are, um, you know, maybe she knows everyone that works at WISE. You know, maybe she has a herd of cattle and is like, you know, I'm not going to move into an apartment. What am I going to do with these animals? So lots, you know, maybe really far out and can't get to services. Um, and again, our goal at an organization like WISE is to overcome these barriers, not necessarily to tell her she needs to leave, but so that she can make choices for herself that make sense. So the health impact. Um, the obvious ones, the emergent injuries, are basically anything you can imagine um, and are things that we want to certainly have documented. But also, there are all of these things that may not be so obvious. And um, so traumatic brain injury is incredibly important. Um, and there's a huge kind of overlap in the symptomatology of traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. So I always want to be looking at that. Strangulation um, is 
incredibly common and is something that we've started to ask about um, because, again, it's terrifying. People don't want to talk about it. They'll usually call it choking, and so sometimes people miss it because they think that, you know, oh, they were choking on something. Um, but, yeah, terrifying, potentially lethal, also a felony in New Hampshire, so important to be documenting. Um, danger during pregnancy, um, and, of course, murder. So um, Vermont actually has the dubious distinction of always being in the top 10 of domestic violence intimate partner homicides. Um, one year we were number two in Vermont. Um, New Hampshire is usually right up there as well. And a third sought health care for IPV-related injuries before they were murdered. And then there's just the stress. So probably many of you are aware of the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. There's all sorts of really interesting work being done now about the direct correlation between trauma and stress and you know, the physiological outcomes. So Stephen Porges' work on polyvagal systems and all sorts of other really interesting work. Um, this sort of speaks to this, you know, so these kind of, you know, not really sure, she's coming in with certain symptoms, not really sure what they are, um, and sometimes they're just stress and trauma itself. Um, and mental health. So not only are victims kind of impacted in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is incredibly common, um, but it's, it tends to be a more kind of complex trauma because it's, you know, people can get post-traumatic stress disorder from a car accident. This is actually living with the person that's terrifying you. And our um, you know, physiological response of fight and flight is not going to work. There's no place to go. And what am I going to do, really fight? That's not probably going to work out so well for me. So being stuck and um, being in this place and not being able to do anything about it um, really lends itself to extraordinary trauma. Um, there's you know, this one study that more than 90% of women hospitalized post-suicide um, reported current severe domestic violence. I know when um, WISE advocates are in the inpatient psychiatric um, unit here, we're always like, wow, we know a lot of the women here. And then when we're just sitting around kind of chatting to one person, it's so common for other women to come over and say, oh my gosh, you know, I've never connected with you, but this is what's going on in my life. So just absolutely enormous issue in terms of mental health. And just not being able to necessarily get to healthcare is also another issue. So sometimes a red flag for IPV is that someone has waited to access care in the first place. Um, and that was, I was saying before, you know, pediatrics can be good because it's less likely they're going to not access pediatrics, but for the adult woman's care, often there's a restriction. So asking is what you have to do, and study after study after study shows that women and victims want to be asked and will not tell unless they're asked. So people are not volunteering this information, and not only that, but they um, they want to be asked and want there to be a world in which people are being asked, so not only on the individual basis, but like this is how we change the world. You know, when healthcare providers say, we know this is a real issue, and so that's why we ask everyone, then that really changes the culture around it. And we talk to women all the time who say, you know, I knew when I went to see my healthcare provider, they were going to ask, and this time I was going to be ready to tell. And that's how they got you know, access to WISE. So really must be important. But also, always only do it when the person's alone. And don't assume just because they're with someone who's the same gender that that's not the partner. So you have to be absolutely um, screening when the person's alone. And then um, we are always working with this person's expertise in their own life and um, making sure that we're not making decisions for them. One, because it's dangerous, but also then we're sort of acting like the abuser. So we're always really giving the control back to the person who's experienced the trauma. And um, victims say 
that they want to be treated with respect and given protection, and but they want healthcare providers to document. And so again, coming back to the beginning, we see this all the time, and it's been shown in research so important. And we also know that it's really common for providers to underdocument for lots of reasons. And I um, sometimes, at least, if not often, it's because they're concerned about the patient and they don't want to do something that's going to cause harm, that will you know, blow confidentiality. Um, and as we'll hear from Janet, there are lots of systems in place now that um, make it much safer than it used to be to document intimate partner violence. Um, the, Healthcare records can actually be admitted in New Hampshire without testimony. So I think also sometimes healthcare providers are like, I don't want to get involved with a court case. I'm not the person for that. Um, but it can be admitted without that. And um, what we see sometimes is just with the medical record, that's enough for an offender to um, plead guilty because it's such powerful evidence in a case. And we also see that cases get just dismissed from court if they don't have the documentation. And it really calls into question the um, credibility of the victim in court by the defense, which is heartbreaking. You know, here's this woman that went to their healthcare provider and said, this is what's happening to me, and told probably law enforcement that. And when the defense gets a hold of it, they say, well, you know, she clearly made it up. You know, she said that she went to the doctor or the nurse, and um, there's nothing in the record about it. Um, so victims want to know what's going to happen to that information. And you know, well, Janet's going to talk about what does happen here at Hitchcock. Um, but also last year, um, the Dartmouth Institute did a little project with WISE um, interviewing, doing some qualitative research with victims about healthcare records. And the thing that came up again and again and again wasn't, you know, what kind of screening instrument you use or what sort of form it was, but just tell us what you're going to do with that information. One woman I remember said, you know, the healthcare provider is like a law enforcement officer to me. There's some person that's really important, and I don't really know who they're going to tell what to, and um, I'm not going to feel safe disclosing this unless I know what that person's going to do with that information. So this um, limitation of confidentiality is incredibly important. We are so lucky to be in both New Hampshire and Vermont where there is not a mandated report for domestic violence, but there are some limitations to our confidentiality. Um, so I'm sure you know you all know that if someone's under 18, it's a mandated report if someone's being abused, hurt. Um, and if they're over 18 and they have um, serious bodily injury, a gunshot wound, um, then it does have to be reported to law enforcement. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about um, the Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services reporting. So unless someone is incapacitated, it is not a mandated report. So the fact that someone's coming to you and they're over 65 and they're describing domestic violence does not make it a mandated report, only if they're incapacitated. How many states are that's a great question. I don't know. I do know that there are some, from my work at Praxis, because we bring all these organizations together from all over the country, and it's such a barrier yeah. to being able to work with someone when someone has to go to law enforcement. Uh, so just to back up one slide here, just to clarify, serious, serious bodily injury per New Hampshire statute, New Hampshire law, uh, is loss of life, limb, or organ. Um, or permanent disability. People are like, well, what is that classified as? Okay, Incapacitated adults, to be incapacitated, you can't care for yourself, home, or financial needs. Okay, So you have to reasonably uh, fit one of those particular things to be incapacitated. Even as a healthcare provider, if you're wondering, oh my gosh, I wonder, is this? Is this not? I don't know. Um, technically, if you're suspicious, it's a report to the Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services. You can call them and say, I'm on the fence on this. I don't know if I should be calling you. And they will make the determination for you, OK? Um, so documentation, um, genuine non-judgmental non statements of concern, OK? We want to put those in our charting, OK? If this stuff isn't in the charting, that patient, when they go to court or when they go for things, is going to be discredited completely, OK? 
Um, it outlines your care, serves as a reminder report when necessary. The better you document for the patient, the better you're documenting for yourself should you have to go for testimony, okay? Um, and it should truly reflect what occurred, okay? Um, remain factual, non-biased. I know it sounds simple, but believe it or not, some of the common terms that we use, we'll get into some of them, actually are going to be very biased. And you wouldn't think so, just because that's how we speak. Um, document the patient's statements of medical relevance. What did you observe? What did you do? And what was the patient response to it? Everybody reacts to trauma completely differently, okay? Um, there's a lot of research. If you guys ever get a chance to um, look up Rebecca Campbell, the neurobiology of trauma, she, it's a one-hour thing by the Department of Justice, and it's a great webinar in terms of, it says, okay, anyone who's traumatized, whether it be domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, the motorcycle accident they were just in, the death of a loved one, okay, it's traumatic. Um, it makes all of your hormones go in all different directions, and you can't remember things in a certain order, okay? Everyone reacts completely different. You may have a domestic violence, but, you know, a woman who is cracking jokes and laughing, and it's just... Oh, it's what her way to, to cope, okay? Or you might have the person who's in the corner on the floor in fetal position that you can't get to speak at all, okay? Um, you learn to use layman's terms and use quotes as much as possible. Um, this is a real big pet peeve of mine. Do not write alleged, alleges, or allegations. Um, nothing worse than going to court and hearing Nurse Carol, and they're flipping through a, a medical dictionary. Nurse Carol, the doctor, wrote... Um, alleged sexual assault. In this dictionary, XYZ, I don't know which one it was, you know, one of the definitions was non-factual. So you medical providers did not believe this patient from the get-go. That is her medical diagnosis. Oh, can you imagine? So um, alleged, alleged allegations, just try to get it out of your charting. Um, do not form a written opinion of, in your record, like consistent with or inconsistent with. Like, you know that this is a grab mark. You know it's a grab mark. Um, instead of documenting grab mark, it's gonna be four or five linear bruises measuring X by X. Patient states, he grabbed me. Um, that's how you, you're not going to put grab mark in there. And if they don't say this is a grab mark, that's okay. I'll leave the grab mark out of your documentation, okay? Um, so documenting the history, um, documenting the history, so they come into a clinic appointment or the emergency department, generally they're not going to come in for domestic violence or you know, intimate partner violence. So you're going to get the regular chief complaint. Um, history of the current illness, what brings you in today, okay? Current details um, and contributions to the problems. Um, record any other problems that might be related to the intimate partner violence, okay? So documenting the history of violence, okay? And I think this, Abby wrote this, and it's wonderful and amazing, and now I have to come up with some good forms. That's what we're doing. So um, the pattern, generally it's not one incident. It's the hundreds of thousands of incidents that have built up to this one point, okay? Um, past episodes, what injuries have they had? Are there any procedures that have been related to, to the current intimate partner violence? or even the past intimate par partner violence, okay? That you're going to want to know in your documentation um, to help build this for the patient because they might have gone in and had to have a hysterectomy. Um, it might have been related to something, you know, an STD or something that got out of control and they ended up having to have that done, okay? Um, when it actually it was contributed to the intimate partner violence. The who, what, when, where, okay? Um, history of violent episodes, relationship to the perpetrator, okay? The perpetrators identifying information. Um, I don't necessarily say, who was it? At some point when they're disclosing to you, they're probably going to say, my brother, my, you know, my brother, my father, my husband, my boyfriend, you know, my wife, my whoever it is, okay? Um, and you're gonna to wanna to put that in, in quotations. The date, times, and locations, and how much time has passed. Um, everything you wanna put in. Weapons, were any weapon used or threatened upon you, okay? Um, you're going to be amazed by when you ask for every, if you ever threatened with weapons, you're going to hear some disgusting stories, okay? And just remember, you're not investigating, you're documenting and recording. Technically, medical providers, you're taking a history, okay? You're taking a medical history. You're not interrogating the patient, okay? So 
do do with that how you would with your chest pains or your you know diabetic foot ulcers. Okay, you're taking a history of how it occurred and the who, what, when, where. Okay. Um, how you relate to her experience. Um, so instead of saying, I hear this a lot in the emergency department, tell me your story. Oh, did you hear that story? People, especially people with domestic violence or intimate partner violence, they're going to turn around and say, story. No, this is what happened to me. A story is a fairy tale, okay? So try to get the word story out of your vocabulary when you're talking um, to these patients. Um, use the patient word, patient states, okay? Patient states, you know, I was thrown against the wall and that kind of thing. Do not write, patient was punched in the face. If you put that in, it might be dismissed from court because, you know what, it didn't come from uh, the patient. Patient states, quote, that's where he punched me in the face, unquote. You want those quotes from the patient, not a generic um, narrative of patient stated, blah, blah, blah. They're going to try to question it in court, okay? Um, describe the relationship in the patient's terms. Whoever said that, you know, my boyfriend, my father, my brother, my husband, my wife, you know, my neighbor, whoever it might be. Um, we already did the alleges. Claims is another word you want to um, get out of your vocabulary. Um, so, and do not use the word story. We already went over that. So document what you see. Um, try not to write um, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, or shorthand like DV or IPV, okay? Even though it's not, we know what it is, okay? You all, we all know what it is. But technically, it's going to be the court who's going to be the, like, the final decision to call it the domestic violence or the intimate partner violence, okay? The legal systems will use all the information that you compile to come up with um, what crime has been committed, okay? Uh, the, you want to describe the patient's physical appearance? Did they have torn clothing? Were, how were they acting? And they can turn around and bring someone in who can, you know, at court time, who can say, well, actually, the neurobiology of trauma, how trauma affects the brain, can make everyone, you know, react in completely different ways, okay? The demeanor, shaking, calm. Um, even if that demeanor is surprising, record it. They'll bring someone in for you, okay? Uh, and I think a lot of people forget to document the threats, okay? The threats to, threats to physical safety. He said he was going to kill me if I leave him. He said he would hurt the dog. Um, women and men do incredible things to, you know, to help their family, to help especially their pets. Their pets become part of the family. And the psychological abuse. He said he would take the children and I would never see them again. Um, that's a very common one. Um, and you might want, so if they turn around and say to you, you know, he punched me in front of my sister. You're going to want to put that in your chart because they can go ahead and ask the sister did, to corroborate the, the story, the experience, okay? To corroborate everything that's happened to that patient, whether it be the neighbors, the friends, the coworkers, family, all who were mentioned. You want to put it in your charting, invest in quotes, okay? Uh, if you do have the patient who comes in with injuries, okay? You want to know the location, size, shape, color, okay? Size, um, generally you, in medical, we usually use centimeters. If you write it in inches, um, be prepared to say that one inch equals 1.54 centimeters, okay? Um, did the patient state how it occurred? He punched me there. So if you know why they have that bruise, write why they have the bruise. Don't draw the, draw the unfounded conclusion. Um, once again, the bite mark, the slap mark, the handprint, the grab mark, that kind of thing, okay? Instead, document what it looks like. Uh, body maps, you think I could find a picture of a body map, but um, no, I'm gonna to have to literally take a picture of one of our body maps. Um, so anytime you have injuries on a patient who's, who comes in with these types of injuries, domestic violence, intermittent partner violence, in EDH, there is like the body diagrams, you can pull them up, it, it's hard, but you can find it, I promise you. Um, we also have them on paper in the emergency department. Um, and literally, you're going to draw in, oh, they have the, the five linear lines. You're going to draw the five linear lines and do lines to them, you know, and document, you know, five centimeters by one and a half centimeters. This one, you know, you're going to want to document where they were, okay? Very useful in the legal proceedings, okay? Um, anytime you have 
Carrot Dartmouth Hitchcock, I don't think a lot of photography gets done. In the emergency department, we have the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program. We're seeing sexual assault, child, after the cap hours, we're seeing child abuse. Um, we're also seeing domestic violence, intimate partner violence. If you feel that you have a patient who's going to benefit from photography, if they have actual injuries, you need to be calling up the emergency department saying, hey, I need some pictures taken of this particular person. If they're here at the hospital, okay, or in the Lebanon campus area, our SANE nurses could technically go to them if need be. I know I've spent many, many hours in, you know, in the ICU psych units in OBGYN. I've spent many hours there, okay? Um, and we are forensically trained in order to do that, but we're gonna go over how you do do it. So a picture equals a thousand words. Um, I had a patient at one point in my career, okay? She uh, was found face down, shot in the head, stabbed in the neck, stabbed in the shoulder. I don't remember what other god-awful injury she had. Um, she had been laying her urine so long, so face down, that she had you know, ammonia burns from her urine, okay? She was excoriated. She had pressure ulcers. She had, to the non-medical person, if you could see the, the number of tubes, drains, everything that were in her body, okay? If you could just picture the C-collar, you know, the, the brain drainer, the bolt, the, the arterial lines, you know, the intubation, the Foley catheter, oh, they have restraints on her arms because she's intubated. I took one look at this girl and I was like, oh my God. And all I had to do was take one picture of that. I don't think we'll have to go to court because they're gonna see that one picture and it's gonna be a guilty verdict without a doubt in my mind. So one picture is worth a thousand words, okay? So if you can do it, please do it. Um, you have, in New Hampshire, or here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you have to have written consent to do so, okay? The patient can sign off um, to go ahead and have them done. They should be taken by an examiner. Whoever's taking the photos should be the one taking the photos. It shouldn't be an assistant that's with them. Um, you can't have an assistant help, but you better be able to document that you were definitely the one taking the photos and not, you know, the tech down the hall who, you know, just because they're wonderful and amazing and can do everything. No, you need to do that, okay? And photographs should not be taken in place of dot. They shouldn't be, if you're taking photographs, you still have to have the written description and you still have to use the body map diagrams, okay? Some judges out there will throw out the photos, believe it or not, okay? Rare, but it might happen, okay? So you're, this is one point where you are triple documenting, not double documenting, triple documenting, okay? Um, and it serves to document the actual physical appearance of an injury to preserve it. Um, and it shows violence, um, such as the torn clothing. You can go ahead, okay, you know what? The bra is ripped. We don't need it. We just need to take a picture of it, okay? It shows the amount of force. It takes a lot of force to rip a bra, okay? Um, so this is the how-to of photography, should you have never done it in your life before, okay? So of each, so this is in New Hampshire. This is taken out of the um, forensic nursing protocols. Um, for every injury, so, if I have a bruise on my forearm, the first picture of the series, okay, it needs to be a long distance shot. So I can say, yep, that's the right forearm. Look at that, okay? And then I need a close up. Yep, that right there, you know, close up view of it. And then the third shot of that one injury is gonna be with a measuring tool. It's a little L shaped, it's black, white, and gray, and it will help you measure it in centimeters, okay? So of every injury, you should have three photos. And generally, we do a patient sticker for identification purposes or you know, patient bracelet. Um, and then we do, some places are getting away from this, a full body picture of the patient. Um, it's just pretty much to prove that, yep, these photos belong to this person, so no one can say that it didn't happen, okay? That these are the person, okay? Um, and then you begin your photos, you know, the three of each injury. And then your last photo, you want to bookmark it with another picture of the patient sticker or bracelet. Okay, so should someone else's photos for some reason get there, you say, nope, I bookmark my photos, okay? Um, and consider a photo log for documentation purposes. So if you have someone who you're documenting, you know, uh, what, I think we took over 100 photos one night. Um, we, uh, one way to do it is if you do a photo log, like photo number one, patient sticker, you know, photo number 63, bruise, right forearm, three centimeters by three centimeters. Instead of having to write that on the body map diagram, you can just write the number that corresponds with that injury to save some, some time, okay? 
so you have to use the consent form. Does your department have a camera? Um, I don't know. I, I'm pretty isolated to the emergency department, but maybe you guys do have cameras. I don't know. Okay. Um, if you don't, you can call the same nurses in the emergency department. We generally, um, we technically have 24-7 call. Um, sometimes we don't have full coverage, but we are definitely working on it. And I don't think we've had too many cases where anyone else has had to do anything for us. Uh, so do call and reach out to us. Um, strangulation, as Abby said, is very prevalent in the intimate partner violence patients. Um, strangulation, very common. In New Hampshire, it's now a felony. That is huge. In Vermont, you are saying it might be attempted, attempted murder charges. Okay. In New Hampshire, not January, not this past January, the January before, it was a misdemeanor. Just saying. So, um, so it is a felony. So we really need to document this well. Um, there is strangulation tools available. Um, the New Hampshire uh, SANE Nurses and Forensic Nurse Examiner Program actually has a tool online. Um, we have it here in the emergency department, and it outlines. It's a great tool. Um, it will say, you know, it will ask you, it's a bunch of check marks. What was the manner or mechanism of, of the strangulation? How did they do it to you? Was it using hands? Was it using a ligature? Was it your jewelry? Was it a scarf? What, what was it? Okay. And it prompts you to do all of this so that you don't miss anything that's important. You know, during the strangulations, what signs and symptoms did you have? You know, A, could you not breathe? B, you know, were you incontinent of bowel or urine? Um, those kinds of things. It's going to prompt you to, to ask these things. What types of signs and symptoms have you had in strangulation? Have you had a hoarse voice? Have you had shortness of breath? Has your neck been sore? You know, et cetera, et cetera, okay? The physical exam with findings. So it has all of the body map diagrams from like mid-chest up. Front, back, and sides. So, oh, and eyes doing this too, you know, for your petechiae yeah, that you're going to be looking for. Um, it also, uh, a cranial nerve assessment. I don't know about you, but it would have been a long time since I've done the cranial nerve assessment. There is a great article online. Um, it was published in one of the medical journals, and it's using a stick of gum. I've printed it for our same nurses. And virtually using the stick of gum, whether they can smell it, that's a cranial nerve, you know, can they chew it, can they this, can... Literally, it takes, you know, less than a minute with one stick of gum. It, I'm highly impressed with this article. Um, so we do have that. Um, it has the body maps. Um, and then it also gives you suggested discharge instructions that you might not think of, um, you know, specifically for the strangulation patients. Um, so this is examples of poor documentation. I went to a great conference, um, and this is some of the notes that I had. Um, believe it or not, someone who was um, a special education teacher who was found guilty of sexual assault, the medical doctor actually wrote fostering sexual relationship. Are you kidding me? Anywho, they you know performed oral sex. The word performed sounds consensual. Okay, um, you can say oral sodomy, or patient states, he put his penis in my mouth, okay, that kind of thing. Um, while, this one, while maintaining a sexual relationship, are you kidding me, you know, while maintaining a sexual relationship, you know, sexual assaults did occur. It just, you're not helping the patient here, okay? Um, and, you know, Joan is a battered woman. Joan is defined, however, the man is completely out of the picture, okay? Um, phrases to avoid. The accuser, if you turn around and put that in your chart, it's going to be, you know, negative towards the patient, okay? Um, it's going to make the public feel sorry for the perpetrator if you hear the word accuser, okay? And it kind of makes sense once you, once you step back and look at it. Um, domestic dispute, a little argument, you know, a family matter, you know? Abusive relationship, it's not the relationship that's abusive, okay? It takes the responsibility away from the abuser. Victim confessed. That sounds like she's guilty immediately. Um, this one is, yeah. Child porn or kitty porn. I don't know how many times I read that in police officer notes. We're working on it one day at a time, one police officer at a time. It should be child sex abuse images, okay? Um, they had sex. Sounds consensual. Um, or he put his penis in her vagina, okay? Date rape. Um, rape is rape. It's independent of a relationship. You should be able to date anyone you want without being raped. 
Okay. Um, this is just an information sheet on medical hearsay. So this is for the acute ones um, who generally come into the emergency room or might present to the clinics and be like, oh my God, this just happened, oh, da, 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 you know, and they just quick, they're excited and they just blurt it out and they might just be so happy just to get someone that's safe, okay? Believe it or not, so normally in court, you know, a regular case goes to court and it's like, well, she said that he said that she said, you know, they're gonna throw all that out, okay? In medical hearsay, this is the one time when you can be like, if you document it in quotations, like, like you've learned today, okay, you document that, they can go ahead and put that into the, you can be the, you can be the hearsay person, okay? Um, it is legal in New Hampshire to do that, okay? Um, so the excited utterances or uh, spontaneous exclamations about the incident, um, you can go ahead and go to court with, okay? Um, documenting um, intimate partner violence and safety. There are firewalls in medical records. Um, here at, in, at DHNC, we do have the break the glass. Um, our old system had a better break the glass, if you ask me, but anywho. Um, so the provider, so we can do the break the glass function, which we'll, I'll tell you how to do that. And then um, you can also call up risk management and be like, hey, you know, I'm really concerned about this patient. She's concerned about her record. You know, we need to put some surveillance on this. It's okay to go ahead and do that. They, they might do it. I'm assuming that they will do it for you, okay? Um, and then you also have to think in the, um, like the one DH, are they gonna be that controlling husband or, you know, significant other who's going to have her or his, you know, passwords to the 1DH. So she might be getting help at the hospital. And then when she gets home, she's in for a world of world of hurt because he's already read some of her record. Um, I don't know to the extent of how much, um, how much they can read on the 1DH pages, but you need to look into that, we really do. Yeah, there's also the concern that the, the partner, the abuser could have access to it if they provider. Yep, yes, we have, we have a host of people that work here at this institution who are batterers and I'm being recorded so I can't swear. So, um, and you probably work with a few of them. Um, so, just think about who might have access from home, that kind of thing, and we're ready. So break the glass for your chart. This is the steps to do it. Believe it or not, I've tried it many times. Right now, um, doctors, nurse practitioners, midwives, PAs are the ones who can act, who can do this. And it should be put in there for nurses, but we're gonna work on that, we're gonna alert them. So you go to the patient chart, select more activities from the bottom left corner, then FYI, new flag, go to the magnifying glass, highlight the specific date that you wanna restrict, and then you're gonna pull down a little thing that says restricting, if restricted encounter exists, and then accept it, and every time you get in, you have to break the glass. Okay, and then go ahead, sister. <laughs> um, oh. So, um, just wanted to let you know a little bit about the services that are available at your local crisis center. So, um, our job in this world is to complement what healthcare providers do. So, we have very different jobs. Um, always also want to remind people that our, we have a very high level of privileged communication by statute. So sometimes someone will call and say, hey, whatever happened to Mary, who I called you that, and we can't share that information unless we have a written release. So even if they have a release from you, that doesn't mean that it releases us. So we're not trying to be difficult when that happens, just trying to protect someone's confidentiality. Um, we have a shelter program. We're connected to shelters around um, the country. So if someone needs to get out of town, then we can help them do that. We have a 24-hour crisis line. We come here and to police stations 24 hours a day. We go to court with people. We help with access to other legal services. Um, safety plan, we have lots of groups. Um, we do you know, one-on-one -on -one support and um, some body-mind trauma healing work as well. And also we're here for you, so to do consultations with you. Um, said before that we worked with about 1,100 people last year, um, but across the state there's over 11,000 people calling the local programs. 
And um, our work really works. So it's been shown that um, people who access crisis services are less likely to be seriously injured or murdered. Um, so it's actually a really useful tool. And that's all for today. Yep. I think we just Thank you so much for coming. This yeah. Event. It's really good to see this type of support out there. And if you have questions, you know, do remind, um, you have the same nurses here in the emergency department. You, know, you have WISE. Um, use the services that we already have in place, okay? Use them, we're here to help. There's some WISE materials down here. Um, and yeah, feel free to come and ask questions. It looks like some people might be waiting. But um, yeah, and I won't talk about you at the next talk. <laughs> <laughs>